Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, music for cats. WNPR science reporter Patrick Scahill will tell us about how scientists are looking into the musical preferences of our feline friends. But first, Neanderthals have long been recognized as humans' closest relatives. They were highly intelligent, they were skilled hunters with a rugged build and a knack for toolmaking. So why is it that we thrived while Neanderthals died off over 40,000 years ago? The exact cause of this extinction has puzzled researchers for many years, but now an anthropologist has a compelling explanation that might just be the answer we've been waiting for. Today, Pat Shipman will join us to share her story about how humans and their wolf dogs contributed to the Neanderthals' demise. Later in the program, we'll be also taking a closer look at domestication in animals and how exactly that works. But first, Pat Shipman is a retired adjunct professor of anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University, the author of The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. She joins us today from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. First of all, set up the scenario for us. Who were the Neanderthals and how did they develop over millennia at the same time alongside humans? Neanderthals evolved in Europe or in Eurasia um, starting several hundred thousand years ago and were members of a species that uh, we would call archaic humans. That is, you can see very clearly when you look at their bones that they're closely related to us. As you said, they were intelligent. They had tools. They had fire. They were very adept hunters of a large game. They were the sole creature of that sort in Eurasia until about 45, maybe 42,000 years ago when modern humans who had evolved in Africa began to expand their territory outwards and arrived in Eurasia to confront their close relatives, the Neanderthals. We were, of course, also, we like to think, intelligent. Uh, we had fire. We had tools. We were adept hunters of the very same large game. So when we arrived in Eurasia, we upped the ante. We were a new competitor in an old ecosystem, and one might have supposed that since Neanderthals had been there for a couple hundred thousand years, they would know the turf, they would know the animals, they would clearly do better. But the upshot of the encounter is that they went extinct while we thrived and our population soared. So the question has always been in anthropology, why did it go that way? Why not the more obvious way? Mm. And, of course, the the idea that you present that I think will get a lot of us humans thinking uh, an awful lot is that we are indeed an, in, an invasive species. We, we are a species that evolved and adapted in a way that we see many other species that we 
are dealing with now, whether they're flora or fauna that move in and aggressively take over turf, that's that's your your theory. We're essentially really highly adapted invaders, Pat. That's correct. Um, think about us as mammalian kudzu. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a long history, starting with this first expansion out of Africa, of going to ever new areas, new islands, new habitats, new continents, and wreaking havoc on the existing uh, set of animals and plants that live there. So that this was one of the first big demonstrations of our highly invasive character, and we're good at it. We're we're good at it, and what makes us so good at it? When we when we talk about whether it's kudzu or some sort of a shore crab, the the idea seems to be that uh, the, the animal or the plant uh, adapts very well to the surrounding environment and, and and crowds out the other species, the the native species, and in sometimes different ways. But it seems as though we were very highly adapted to do an awful lot of things. Tell us a little bit more about why we were so good at, at being an invasive species. I think it really comes down to being highly adaptable. Humans, even at this early stage, were tool makers and tool users. That's kind of a shortcut mode of evolving. You don't have to develop big claws and big teeth to uh, chase and catch prey. You can do it with tools and weapons that you make and that you can change the design of if you set your eye on a different kind of prey animal. So we are highly adaptable. We are a social species, which is very important. Uh, We work in groups. And you could say Neanderthals were both of these, but in fact, if we look at the period of Neanderthal extinction, they don't change their tools in any radical way. They don't change what animals they're hunting. They continue to do what they've always done, and it's always worked for them. Now, if we turn to an analogy that I think is very important, we can look at what happened in Yellowstone, uh, the great national park in the western United States. From the time humans first started settling there, we began going after the wolves because we viewed them as competitors. We viewed them as dangerous competitors that might hurt us, might hurt our children, might hurt our livestock. And so wolves were effectively exterminated from the Yellowstone area very quickly after humans, modern humans arrived. And in 1995, 96, Wolves were restored to the Yellowstone ecosystem. This was a pretty bold move. It took lots of preparation, lots of study, and before reintroducing wolves, there were thorough studies of the habits and territories and prey or predators at work in Yellowstone. So we knew a lot about what the elk and the moose and the pronghorn antelopes and the the white-tailed deer, uh, sorry, the mule deer, and the native bears and uh, coyotes and bobcats and other predators did and how that whole system worked. Within a very few years of 
freeing only 31 individual wolves in Yellowstone, the whole ecosystem got shaken up and reorganized. Coyotes, which had been living in large wolf-like packs, had been in some senses a dominant predator, suddenly faced competition that was bigger than they were and fiercer than they were, and the numbers of coyotes dropped precipitously. They were being outcompeted for the prey they had relied on for decades by the wolves, who, for from their point of view, were putting intense competitive pressure on the other predator that was most like them. If you transfer that analogy back into the past, you can say modern humans arrived, they were good hunters, and they put huge and focused pressure on the competitors that were most like them, the Neanderthals. Now, there were still saber-toothed cats, large leopards, cave lions, cave bears, cave hyenas. So there were a lot of predators in this ecosystem before modern humans arrived. But study of the impact of an invasion by an apex predator tells us that the one that really gets hammered is the next most similar species, and that would have been Neanderthals. Hmm. We're talking with Pat Shipman, whose new book is The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. You, you mentioned the, the wolf experiment in Yellowstone. It's a perfect segue then to the next part of our conversation, which is right in the title of your book. If humans uh, did this, it wasn't just on their own. It was in part because they brought another invader with them. Tell us about the, the wolf dog and, and how it helped in the extinction, in, in your mind, of the Neanderthal. First of all, I'd like to clarify what I mean by a wolf dog. I don't mean the hybrids that you see occasionally today. Um, it's actually a very bad idea, and they make very poor pets. However, it happens. Wolves and dogs are very much alike and can still interbreed. The reason I call them wolf dogs is I don't want people to think our ancestors formed an alliance with poodles or Labrador retrievers or Afghan hounds or King Charles Spaniels. We're talking... <laughs> I can't imagine that a, an invasion of Labrador retrievers would do much more than, than slobber all over the Neanderthals and, and uh, well, roll around on the true. ground. <laughs> yes. Anyway, please continue. But these, are do these would be dogs uh, that were still extremely wolfy. This is the first domestic animal ever. And they were large, and we can say from looking at wolves and dogs, they could track by sense of smell, they could track prey by hearing, they were much faster than we are, that is, run faster, swifter, isolate and surround prey, and harass them, stress them, charge them, keep them in place. Now, a wolf would do all that, and then, ultimately, one of the wolves in the pack would have to go in and bring that animal down, which is where the big danger lies. That's where you get stomped or kicked. <clears throat> That's where you get thrown off and bones broken if you're the wolf. If, however, you were a wolf dog working with humans, 
Humans could then come in and kill the animal from a distance using spears and spear throwers or perhaps bows and arrows. Distance killing is so much safer for everybody. But working with a dog or a wolf dog is so much safer for the humans because they catch more prey, they catch prey faster with less energy expenditure. They, because the wolf dogs bring to the, to the chase attributes we don't have, everybody wins. There's less energy expended getting the animal. There's less danger getting the animal. And more food, less energy expenditure, all spells more energy for reproduction, which is the big uh, aim in evolution. And coming up in a couple minutes, we'll get a little bit more detail on why humans were able to forge this bond with these early wolf dogs. I just have to ask then quickly so that our, our listeners truly understand, you're not talking about humans and their canine friends attacking in large groups Neanderthals directly. It's about forcing them out. It's about getting all of the, the good games so that so that they can eat better, reproduce more, and, and essentially drive the Neanderthals for their, from their home, uh, compete better for the same, for the same uh, produce, I suppose. Yes, that's exactly right. That They all wanted the same resources, the same good caves to live in, the same good hunting spots, the same prey. I mean, exactly the same animals were preyed on. But by using, by domesticating some sort of dog out of wolves, our ancestors were able to do it more effectively and more efficiently. And that left less prey for the Neanderthals, the same as wolves in Yellowstone now leave less prey for coyotes. Um, we would take over the better spots, the better caves to live, the better spots for hunting. And we would do it without such a huge expenditure of energy. Being a a big game hunter on foot with only weapons you make yourself is a fairly risky business. It doesn't always work. You don't always get anything to eat. And the nutritional fluctuation in the protein and the fat that you can get hunting even daily is very difficult for making babies. <laughs> it's simply hard for the mothers to to manage, to uh, grow and then nurture the babies with their breast milk if you don't know whether you're going to have anything to eat at the end of the day. Mm, well, so sec well, securing I, your food is very important. I, I, I want to continue this conversation right after our break with Pat Shipman, who is the author of The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. When we come back, we'll talk more about what it was that humans were able to do to forge this bond with dogs and talk more about the history of domesticating animals. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We're talking to Pat Shipman, who is the author of a new, very interesting book called The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. We're talking about this important piece of human history and also talking about the domestication of animals. So quickly, Pat, before we bring in our next guest, tell us what is it about humans that you think made us so good at forging this bond? I mean, why were we able to say, hey, dogs, come along with us and help us out, and the Neanderthals just couldn't make that same kind of connection? First of all, you need to understand this in the context of human history, that um, 
there were no domestic animals at this point in time. So nobody knew how to do this. Nobody did this deliberately. Nobody looked at that snarling, ferocious, highly territorial and aggressive animal, the wolf, and said, oh, let's bring those in by the fire. They're wonderful. It has to have happened accidentally. It has to have happened, I think, almost certainly with wolf pups. And humans have a tremendous propensity to take in and nurture and look after babies of all kinds of species. And let's be realistic about this. If the puppy didn't behave in ways that were liked um, or appreciated, if they got too aggressive, if they got too rowdy, if they got too annoying, they'd be killed and probably eaten. There's no question about that. People were not doing this out of some humane ideal of taking care of little puppies, but because we like doing that as a species. Now, there is also a question of communication and developing effective communication that has to have been crucial in this process. One of the interesting things about modern humans is we are the only primate, the only species in our family that has whites to our eyes and very wide open eyelids. Um, there's some wonderful work done by Japanese researchers, first of all, establishing that we are the only animals in our zoological family that uh, have this feature, and also in documenting and investigating issues about what that does. If I look at you, and then I look off to the right at something we are highly interested in, both of us, and then back at you, you're going to look to the right to see what I'm seeing, because you can tell my direction of gaze, which is the technical term. I can tell you which way I'm going to go if we're cooperating in something, not by shouting and waving my hand and saying, I'm going left around the bushes, you go to the right. I can do it by looking in the direction, by communicating with you silently and non-verbally. Dogs pick up on this hugely. Dogs are very sensitive to direction of gaze of humans. Now, of course, we didn't start with dogs. We started with wolves. And of the canids that have been surveyed, which is quite a number of them, wolves are the farthest developed in this direction of communication with eye gaze. That is, wolves don't have a white to their eyes. Dogs don't either, or actually they do, but it's not usually very visible because of the shape of the eyelid opening. But what wolves have is a strong contrast between the colored portion of your eye, the iris, that tells you where you're looking, and the surrounding fur and skin around the eyeball. Mm. So there is a contrast there. They're already adapted in that direction, and I'm sure wolves use it when they're pack hunting to indicate interest, intentions, future movements. Mm. I've just seen something over there in the grass. Can you see it too? So we both seem to have adaptations in this direction that probably were enhanced through the selective pressures we put on 
wolf pups, the ones that communicated to us were the ones that were more likely to survive mm. and grow up as cooperative hunters with us. Nick is calling from Meriden. Hi, Nick. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I'm a student at Southern Connecticut State University. Uh, and what I was always taught is when we're talking about the domestication of animals, uh, we usually think of the younger dryness period where in uh, Southwest Asia, uh, it was a short period of cooling where humans were kind of forced into these pockets of uh, habitable areas where we were kind of forced to domesticate plants and animals. How does that relate to your theory about the domestication of wolves into the dog-like animals that you're speaking of? Thanks, Nick. What you have been taught is what has been widely accepted for many years, um, but it's much later than the time I'm talking about. And the reason I no longer think this applies to dogs, the first domesticate, is evidence of fossils that are a distinctive group of canids. They're doggy-type animals. They're wolfy-type animals. At these sites, they are different in shape of the skull and the jaw from wolves. They are more dog-like. They are different in their um, diet. That is, we have evidence now from analysis of the bones of these animals that say wolves at the same sites are not eating the same things as these wolf dogs. There's a distinction there that we didn't know about until very recently. And finally, there is a genetic distinction. The wolf dogs are a specific group with a specific mitochondrial DNA lineage that is not found in wolves as far as we have sampled wolves and is not actually found in modern dogs as far as we have sampled modern dogs. But in both cases, the samples are our best attempt at looking at the genetic variability, but you simply cannot hmm. uh, do each one. So I think we're looking at a new ball game when we're talking about 40,000 years ago instead of a much more recent issue of domestication. Also... Many plants and nearly all animals that we have domesticated over time offer two kinds of benefits. One is you can eat them hmm. and keep them once they're domesticated in some kind of reasonable enclosure or, or herd, and they're amenable to that. But they also offer other attributes that we could exploit, like giving milk, uh, having fur that, that they would shed that we could use to make clothing out of, to make twine or rope or things like that out of, without killing the animal. Hmm. Because once you kill, say, a cow, that's it. <laughs> the cow's <laughs> dead. You can eat it. You've had whatever milk you're going to have out of it. You might have whatever hide you have out of it. But if you can exploit the renewable resources that that animal offers, it'll keep making more cows. Which is this a, is a wonderful trait. It's a, it's a wonderful trait for humans, not so great for the cows. We're talking with Pat Shipman, uh, whose book is The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. Stand by for a moment, Pat, as I bring in uh, James Serple, who is professor of ethics and animal welfare at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, to uh, talk to us a little bit about this idea of domestication and what it means. James, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Well, my pleasure. So what do we know about how domestication works and, and how far back can we trace the history of this? That's a really interesting question. The trouble is, <laughs> with a lot of science, you know, the more we discover, the less we know. And that seems to be a bit the case, at least with the uh, domestication of the dog. Um, so there are lots of competing ideas out there at the moment, um, uh, competing ideas about where this domestication happened, uh, whether it only happened once or happened multiple times in different locations, and, and also regarding the probable date of domestication. So. Um, it's all uh, uh, very interesting at the moment. There's all kinds of uh, conflicting data coming in, some from molecular genetics and some of it from archaeology and some of it from what they call uh, morphometrics, which is uh, very detailed kind of computer-driven measurements of, of animal skulls from the past and that kind of thing. So it's, uh, it's all a bit, of a, a bit, a bit confusing. Mm. One of the things that, that we were talking with, with Pat about is this idea of why humans would begin to domesticate animals in the first place. Obviously, we've always wanted to use animals for our benefit, but how much of this, James, is about us wanting to domesticate animals because we, we just really crave their companionship? We, we like it. Well, um, I agree with uh, Pat Shipman that uh, the most likely route by which animals were domesticated, particularly animals like uh, dogs, cats, pigs, and so on, was as essentially as pets um, through this kind of inveterate habit humans have of uh, collecting young wild animals, uh, taking them home, and then uh, caring for them and nurturing them. And um, the interesting thing about that whole process is if you get these animals young enough, uh, they have, of course, formed their primary social attachments to human beings. So they become, in, a, in effect, part of the social group. So they, they regard humans as being members of their species, and they respond to humans in that way. Um, there's another theory out there that things like dogs and cats domesticated themselves by just um, starting to feed off human uh, rubbish, human waste, um, in early human settlements. But I don't see that leading to domestication, uh, at least not directly, uh, mainly because humans, well, I just don't see humans being very tolerant of having uh, uh, wolves hanging around their rubbish heaps, um, especially wolves that are, as it were, uh, not so fearful of humans, which is one of the theories uh, that is associated with this idea of them being domesticated through uh, uh, scavenging. Um, just because there'd be too much of a danger to human children, I think, who would be wandering about. Um, wolves do occasionally prey on humans. It's very rare, but it does happen. And, um, you know, I just don't see our ancestors relishing the idea of having uh, wolves wandering around their villages who weren't very afraid of people. Uh, whereas if you bring a wolf cub in young enough and care for it, in many cases, I think women may have actually breastfed these puppies we have lots of evidence of women breastfeeding young animals all over the world among hunting and gathering societies. Hmm. And uh, this would have formed this very strong attachment between the two species and would have uh, effectively uh, made any opportunities for those animals to become predatory towards humans very unlikely. I, I want to get to a quick phone call here from Bruce, who's calling from uh, East Haddam, I believe. Hi, Bruce. Yes, hello. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I was, uh, I've always been fascinated with this, this animal-human interaction. Um, I'm a biologist by training, but years ago I was, um, 
working on an IMAX film in Mongolia, and we were in the middle of, you know, the steps of nowhere, and, and an evening, the wolves came into the family community, and in the morning, they had lost 17 horses. Um, so I started contemplating on this, and traditionally, they have a livestock guardian dog, which is one of these large breed of dogs, something like a Great Pyrenees, um, that basically had disappeared from, from their culture. Um, and since that visit in early 2000, I started a program and found this ancient dog, land race, I would call it not a breed, and uh, we are now breeding them and placing them back with nomads to uh, continue protecting their livestock from wolves. So it's an interesting kind of circle how how these animals that, that you guys are talking have evolved or co-evolved in symbiosis with people, and it's still continuing, you know, many, many tens of thousands of years later. It's just fascinating. Bruce, it is a fascinating story. Thanks so much for sharing it. James, do you have a thought on, on Bruce's story? Yeah, it's particularly interesting. Um, I think probably... You know, if you're looking for the earliest use for dogs, it probably was indeed this type of uh, protective behavior. Um, dogs, of course, are much more sensitive hearing, much more sensitive sense of smell than humans have. So they detect things long before humans do. So having a, a domesticated wolf uh, with its primary allegiance towards the human group living within the settlement and being alert to danger coming in from outside would be a huge asset, I would have thought, to early human societies, uh, especially after they started to keep other domestic animals, um, when, of course, uh, those animals would be constantly threatened by uh, wild predators. So you can see this very early uh, relationship developing where people become more and more dependent on uh, these guard-dog-type breeds, livestock-guarding dogs, uh, and guarding dogs in general. And, and Pat Shipman, that's a that's a fascinating piece of this that, of course, continues to today. One of the reasons why humans have a, a German shepherd at home is not just because it's a wonderful pet, but in part because it would be the first sentinel, the one who would, who would know that danger was coming and, and protect the humans. Yes. Um, I'd like to respond to what James has said, which is all perfectly valid, but he keeps talking about settlements and villages. And at the time I'm talking about, when Neanderthals were going extinct and early modern humans were newly in Europe, there weren't villages. There weren't permanent settlements. And if you accept the evidence that these wolf dogs, as I call them, are partly domesticated or domesticated wolves that are acting like dogs, they're not going to have self-domesticated because there wasn't any way to do that. There wasn't a village garbage dump to feed from and get used to humans. I agree that humans would not be very happy about wild wolves on a garbage dump, so I don't see that as a very viable means. But it's also simply chronologically not possible until you get Later on in time, when you do have other domestic animals, you have settlements, which is related in many cases to farming, so you have domesticated plants as well. What wolf dogs would have done, I argue, is that they would have enabled early humans to camp at or very near the site of killing an animal. And we start getting these sites with lots and lots of dead mammoths in them, which rarely turn up in archaeological sites older 
then this time. We didn't seem to be able to take out mammoths until we got these wolf dogs. And then you get sites with maybe a hundred individual dead mammoths in them. That's an extraordinary change that says something's happened to ratchet up your ability in taking down big animals. And then you may stay there for a couple of months, but this is not a village in that sense. However, the wolf dogs would help guard the carcass because the carcass and the people are where it lives. This but, is how but, but, but wolf how, dogs... I, I want to ask, though, how, how did the these humans keep the wolf dogs from them once there's a, a huge mammoth carcass just taking over the, the carcass themselves? How did they reach a sort of a detente over whose meat it was, if you if you take my point? I think that has to do with this social structure of being a pack-hunting animal and who is dominant and who is not. There may have been, but we don't have any direct evidence, some kind of confinement of the wolf dogs. Um, I'm hesitant to speculate on that because I haven't seen anything that that would suggest a structure to keep them in. They could have been tied, I suppose. Um, certainly there, people were able to make um, rope-type uh, textiles and um, probably leather straps and strips for various things. So that might have been one way to handle the disposal of whose food is this. Hmm. Also, as James pointed out, uh, canids in general are very, very sensitive to the presence of another species of canid. They are very territorial. They are very aggressive. And there's some good ecological data saying that if you had domesticated wolf dogs, they would know long before the humans did if there were wolves in the area or if there were uh, foxes or coyote-type animals, doles. They probably would be also highly sensitive to big cats, the the cave lions, the leopard, um, and the cave hyena, and the saber-toothed cat that was there. Hmm. So... We are looking at an important guarding function. You no longer kill an animal and then have to grab a piece of it and run away to avoid being confronted with all the scavengers that are going to turn up to try to get a piece of that carcass. You can stay there and share the guarding duty with the dog. Hmm. James, before we run run low on time, I'm wondering if, if anything about Pat's theories about uh, about the time frame here, about humans and, and wolf dogs working uh, long before the idea of, of village life ever came into being, whether or not that changes in your mind, any of, any of your, your thoughts about when and, and how we began to domesticate uh, wolves or dogs? Not really. And um, I mean, the, the, the issue, I mean, I, I, it's sort of arguing semantics a bit, but um, even though these people were hunter-gatherers, they did form temporary settlements, whatever you want to call them, villages. Um, uh, so we have evidence from some of these early sites that they moved seasonally uh, between different areas, but they went back to the same areas repeatedly, sort of year after year, um, and presumably set up temporary camps, which lasted for you know, the season while they were there fishing or hunting or whatever. And then they moved to another area 
uh, later on in the year. So even though they're moving their settlements, they do have settlements. Uh, whether the settlements were big enough to actually, uh, you know, provision a, a permanent population of dog scavengers, I doubt very much. Um, so I think uh, uh, Pat Shipman's right that the, the relationship was more to do with a sort of mutually beneficial relationship between these two animals, um, the humans and, and, and wolves, or their domestic um, uh, uh, sort of uh, progeny. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it doesn't really matter. I, mean, I think the story of when it all started is an interesting one, but I think it's still very confusing. There's some evidence that um, these early wolf-dog lineages just died out. They had nothing to do with modern dogs. Um, there's uh, evidence that uh, they, they're, they're sort of related to ancient wolves, but they're not related to modern wolves or modern dogs, which is kind of interesting, which is further evidence that they may have been a, a kind of a, a dead end, so to speak. They, they existed for a while and then they died out. It's not even clear they were domesticated. They may have just been tamed wolves um, and underwent morphological changes as a result of changes in diet or whatever. Mm. So it's a, it's a, it's really interesting, and there's, we're at this point now with all kinds of new evidence coming in, and every time new evidence comes in, it kind of changes the story a bit. Um, but it's uh, a thoroughly fascinating area. It, it is indeed, and I want to thank James Serple, who's a professor of ethics and animal welfare at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, for joining us in this conversation. Thank you so much, sir. Goodbye. I also want to thank Pat Shipman who is a retired adjunct professor of anthropology at the Pennsylvania State University. She's the author of The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. She joined us today from WUNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Pat, thank you so much for the book and for this interesting conversation. Thank you. I'm glad you brought James in because he raises other points that we haven't had time to go into yet. And, and there's so much more to talk about. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about another one of my favorite domestic animals, the cat. It shows how far we've come in the domestication of animals. At one time, we thought about cats maybe just catching mice so that we could uh, keep our fields clean of them. Now we're thinking about composing music for cats. That's what Patrick Scahill will join us to talk about coming up next, Where We Live. Now on the program, Patrick Scahill, WNPR science and environment reporter and host of The Beaker, will join us to talk about something really fascinating, something I'd never really considered. Hi, Patrick. Hey, John. So um, you've been looking into music that's composed specifically for cats. Now, yes. this is not music played by cats that you might see on YouTube, right? <laughs> but songs composed by humans specifically to appeal to your pet's unique sense of hearing and its perception of time. Uh, so that was just some cat music that, yes. we, that we heard just now. Uh, why would anyone want to compose a song for cats? Uh, well, the story here, John, it starts with a man named Charles Snowden. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, before we answer the why cats question, we need to talk about monkeys, all right? So uh, while we're doing that, I also want you to think about an even bigger question. Do animals even really like music at all? Hmm. Um, so Charles Snowden says this was something that he never really even thought about. But then one day, about seven or eight years ago, he got an email out of the blue uh, from this composer named David Tai. And Ty said, hey, you know, I've been thinking about music a lot lately, and specifically I'm interested in sort of what moves people when they listen to a song. So how does music kind of, you know, affect us emotionally? And Snowden studies psychology, so this was totally up his alley. And if you think about it, though, it's kind of a hard question to answer. There's sort of a big hurdle here. And the big hurdle is finding a naive human test subject because, you know, all of us have been exposed to music. All of us have likes and dislikes. 
So Snowden, who also studies zoology, uh, had this idea. Why not try out songs on some monkeys that had never heard music before? Um, so kind of like a blank slate test subject to see what it is in human music that moved them. So here's uh, Charles Snowden talking about that. And so I had a colony of small monkeys uh, called cotton-top tamarins. These are monkeys from South America. They weigh about a pound or a pound and a quarter when they're fully grown. So they're really tiny. And the idea that we worked on collaboratively to begin with was, can we create music that will change the mood of the monkeys? But they ran into some problems. Uh, to begin with, they learned someone had done this work already. And this is a really interesting study. So in this study, scientists uh, used the same species of monkey, cotton-top tamarins. And what they found was if you gave them a choice between Mozart and German heavy metal, uh, the monkeys preferred Mozart. But if you gave them a choice between silence and Mozart, the monkeys actually preferred silence. So the folks behind this study concluded, okay, you know, hey, look, animals don't like music because, I mean, if you don't like Mozart, what would you like, right? Okay, so I, I, I see a few holes in this, in this <laughs> uh, entire study here. So and we're going to be talking about music that's been... Uh, uh, composed specifically for cats in a moment, but maybe what happened here, Patrick, is they just picked the wrong two types of mon- uh, monkey music, right? right? If you if you played them smooth jazz, maybe monkeys <laughs> would be like, yeah, you know what, I like that, I can kind of dig that, like, yeah. you know. So couldn't that be it? Well, right, and that's sort of what Snowden thought too. Um, and there's actually some evidence to back that up. For one, um, tamarind hearing and communication actually happens at a, a bit of a higher range than ours. It's about two to three octaves higher, actually. C- kind of like Kenny G's <laughs> saxophone, just <laughs> exactly. for instance. Yes. And um, part of David Ty, remember, he's the composer guy who emailed Snowden, part of his theory is that calming music is relative. Um, and Ty and Snowden think it's actually tied to the resting heart rate of whatever species of music the animal is intended for. So for humans, that means a tempo, I guess if you're healthy, of about maybe 60 beats per minute is relaxing. But for a tamarind, it's actually about 200 beats per minute. Okay, so they, they need something that is you know tuned to the beats that they like. Maybe for us it's a rave, for them it's just a chill, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so Snowden and Ty go ahead and they compose music, create it specifically for the monkeys, uh, and play it alongside the human music. And the cool part is they find out that, once again, the monkeys were sort of indifferent to the songs uh, that are composed for us, but they would get calmer when they heard uh, the monkey tunes. And Stonen published a paper on this uh, back in uh, 2009 or 2010. So what was the response? Uh, well, it, not surprisingly, it got a lot of interest. And Snowden says immediately he was fielding phone calls from reporters left and right. And um, along the way, he found uh, everyone wanted to tell him about the music they played at home uh, for their pets reporter who interviewed us for national uh, for national public radio was convinced that his dog loved classical music so he had had the classical music station on all day the dj for the rock station who i talked with was convinced his do- his dog loved heavy metal <laughs> and what we discovered is that basically everybody is convinced that their pets like the music that they like and many many people turn on the radio or put on some sort of music during the day while they're away at work to keep their pets happy and we realized that no one knows really what this music is doing. So they decided to focus on one type of companion animal, and that was cats. And the plan was, again, to sort of compose songs that were specifically tailored for these animals, for these cats. Why cats, not dogs? Well, he says they thought about dogs, but if you think about it, um, there's actually sort of a wide spectrum of breeds of dogs, obviously. And if you take a dog like a Chihuahua and compare it to, say, a Mastiff or a Great Dane, there's going to be a very wide variation in the frequency of their vocalization. Chihuahua would be higher, Great Dane or Mastiff would be lower. But cats are much more homogeneous sort of in terms of size and in body weight. 
So he picked cats, and again, he was trying to just sort of answer the question, how do pets react to music that's composed in their pitch range and at tempos that are good for them? So how do you start uh, composing music for cats then? Well, um, Snowden says this involves a lot of uh, cataloging of uh, cat calls, (laughs) and um, so sort of the unique vocalizations that cats make and how they make those vocalizations. And then the trick that David Tai, the composer, was confronting was sort of reflecting that in the music that he was composing. Um, because one of the things that Snowden told me is, that's sort of clear about human speech is that it's very discreet. It comes in very discreet units like the syllables I'm using in my words right now. Um, but cat vocalizations actually don't do that. They kind of slide a lot of things together and slur things. Um, and here's uh, Snowden talking about that. We discovered that cat vocalizations, along with the vocalizations of many other animals, show um, pitch changes within the same, the same unit. So instead of going la-da-dum, it might go la uh, from a high pitch to a low pitch without having the discrete units that, that we would have in our music. So David Tai, the composer, constructs the music for cats to have many more sliding pitches in a song than humans would, than a song for humans would. Um, and he says uh, they also shifted the pitch of the song up a little bit, and they sort of worked with the tempo. And uh, there's a little bit of science to back this up. And if you actually go to thebeaker.org, we sort of break down how we hear things. You can check it out there. Um, but one other thing that Snowden said is they also had to avoid some of the more lower-sounding, aggressive uh, sounds that would be, uh, you know, basically make your cat scared. And then they also had to talk about tempos. So here's some talking about that. And then we selected tempos that would be relevant for cats. So one of the tempos that we have is the tempo of, of, of purring, which is an amazing um, fast rate. It's about 1,200 beats per minute. And um, the other tempo that we used is a tempo of, of suckling behavior, uh, which is a lot slower tempo. But these are tempos we thought would be potentially interesting or relevant to, to cats. Okay, so, so let's hear some, bring your cat to the radio. Let's hear some cat music. This one's called Cosmos Air. So there's a lot going on there. There's lower, almost purring noises mixed with higher frequency pitches, and they're all sort of like sliding around. Um, And I also thought, uh, Kayon, just because we're listening to this music and it's so relaxing, uh, let's hear one more piece. It's called Rusty's Ballad. Okay, Patrick, it's it's pleasing perhaps to cats, but it's pleasing to humans, too. I mean, are we making music here that's really supposed to be something that we would want to play for cats and listen to along along with them? Yeah, and so you can hear samples of these at thebeaker.org. And exactly, yes, Snowden says when his group composed the Tamarind Monkey music earlier, uh, it kind of sounded like someone rubbing on a balloon. Those were his words. Um, not very pleasant, right? And he says, well, they hadn't really thought about kind of staking out that middle ground, finding music that would please the monkeys and that would please us. So the message there was to think, he said, well, maybe the music that we like, well, if the monkey music sounds like garbage to us, maybe the human music sounds really annoying to the animals, too. Of course, we don't know that. That's just his hypothesis. But Snowden did measure in this study how cats responded to these songs. How do you measure how a cat responds to music, though? Well, in this case, it was something uh, Snowden called approach behavior. And that's kind of science speak for basically, you know, does your cat do anything? Does its ears perk up? Does she walk toward the speaker? And to figure that out, Snowden says they started going into cat owners' houses, with their permission, of course, and they'd play a piece of cat music and a piece of human music for about three minutes at a time. Yeah, and, and you know, and they found that the cats seem to be indifferent to a lot of things. Uh, they seem to be indifferent to human music, oh, just yeah. like the tamarind monkeys. Yeah, just like the tamarind monkeys, they didn't react to it, which would suggest that playing music at home to keep your cats going when you're at work maybe really isn't doing anything for them. Again, we don't know if they find it annoying. All Snowden says is that we know they didn't really react that much when he was playing it. 
Uh, we're almost out of time, Patrick. Yeah. Are there any bigger applications for this work on animals beyond cats, do you think? Well, one of the things that Snowden and his team of researchers are looking at right now is um, soundscapes at zoos and how sort of waterfall sounds that are in there might affect monkeys in, exhibit, in an exhibit. So he's thinking about stuff like that. I love this idea, too, <laughs> just tuning a zoo just so that all the animals and all the people are happy at the same time. It yes. makes for a much more pleasant zoo experience, exactly. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. We'll find out more at thebeaker.org. Patrick Scahill is our science reporter. Thanks so much, Patrick. I of appreciate course. it. Yeah. Of course, you can continue our conversation about Neanderthals and wolves and also cats and their music at WNPR.org. This is where we live.